indeed take your Bible and turn to the book of Exodus. Exodus with me, chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7. If you're visiting this morning and you don't have a Bible, you'll see one in front of you in the racks. Please follow along with us. Help yourself to that. Exodus chapter 7. Well, no doubt, I'm sure this year you have heard this expressed at some point over the past few months. The world is out of control. I know you've heard that. An unstoppable virus, cities burning, mass shootings and stabbings. I mean, I could go on, right, and fill the rest of the morning with that. And maybe you have said it, or at the very least, you have thought it. Maybe, yes, you have thought the world is out of control. And Westmount, I want you to know this morning, it is true. Listen to me, it is so very, very true. The world is out of control. If you mean, as we see it, where it seems like we can't get a handle on much of anything. We just can't, everything's like jello, right? We can't get a handle on anything. Yes, the world is out of control. If you mean you and me and mankind cannot control things like viruses, evil, corrupt governments, people's choices and the like, yes, And not only would we say is the world radically, drastically, increasingly out of control. Beloved, listen to me, it's always been out of control. Yes, there has never been a time in the existence of this earth that we, humanity, have ever been in control. All that this year, 2020, has done, listen, all that 2020 has done is reveal the illusion of control that we live under. That's all that this year has done. It's an illusion. Control is an illusion. Yes, we've enjoyed that illusion for various seasons of our existence. The blissful illusion, so prevalent in recent years, have you heard this? That we are in control of our health. We're further along now. We can control our health. Well, that's a lie. We cannot control our health because ultimately, if we could, we would not face mortal death. And who will not die? Who will not physically die? If we were in control of our health, we wouldn't have terms like this, chronic and terminal. What of the utopian ideal of control over harmony? Oh, my. That is the narrative of the day, isn't it? Why can't we all just get along? The utopian ideal, the blissful, Edenic feeling that harmony just, we just got to do this. We just need to control the right circumstances, make the right policy, and then, then we'll all start getting along. Beloved, listen to me. That too is, as it turns out, a lie. We cannot stop people from hating each other. In fact, I present to you in telling irony, in telling irony, in our so-called protests for harmony, what do we do? We riot and we burn. And of course, what of the modern myth of our control from harm? This is very modern. Modern right to today that you hear things like just stay safe. That too is a lie. 
We cannot manage our risks. Beloved, we do not live life in a bubble of protection and we never have. Listen to me, we live in a world filled with danger. The threat of accident, weather, theft, broken bones and more faces us and more every day. No church, we are not in any semblance of control. We have never been able to stay safe and we never will be on this earth. That is why, Christian, this morning we rejoice. That's right. That's why we rejoice. That's why we sing with joy because if we're honest, and I pray we are this morning, we know what we would do with control if we truly had it. You think the situation's bad now? It would be far worse if we truly were in control. Yes, church, our praise, our peace is rooted in the reality that we have absolutely no control and that our great God has complete sovereign control. Yes, in reference to him, God Almighty, we need to correct our thinking this morning. Under God, under God, the world is not out of control. No, if we're talking about the great I am, God alone, the whole world, listen to me, all of it and all that is in it, all that is happening right up to today is in his complete control. More accurately, more biblically, we'd say it's under his sovereign control. And by sovereignty, as we noted a few weeks ago, we mean this, by way of definition, God's all-powerful rule and absolute control over all things in his creation. That's what we're talking about with sovereignty. Which, as the Bible teaches us, extends from heaven's heights to the human heart. Christian, yes, that is not only true, but hear me, I pray, I pray that that is your comfort for these times. That's your comfort. The world is not out of control. Listen, it's in God's control, moving and spinning the globe just as he chooses. Does that comfort you today? It's in his hands, not yours. And if you feel unsettled this morning, worried about current events, the question is this. Here's the question. I want you to just settle here for a moment. Look at your life. Look at the world. To whom do you ascribe control to? To whom do you ascribe control to? Do you believe that God is above and over and in and through everything? If you are struggling today, then I believe the text that is open in front of you by God's blessed providence needs your urgent attention this morning. Look at it with me. Verse 1 of chapter 7, we'll consider it in full and then study it. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I've made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, 
when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. That is, of course, far too much to dig into for one morning, so we're going to treat this over the next couple of weeks. It is absolutely just packed with things that we need to look at. The sovereignty of God. Look at those verses displayed simply and clearly here as Moses and Aaron begin before Pharaoh. So let's begin with our first look at the sovereignty of God, and that's our first point this morning. God's sovereign over positions. God's sovereign over positions. Let's return to verse 1, which, remember, as you look at verse 1, verse 1 of chapter 7 is a response to Moses from the end of chapter 6. Let's remember where we left off in verse 30 of chapter 6. Remember, Moses said this, But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? That really capped off an extended section of protest, and we looked at that in full. But then God's reply with that protest booms as chapter 7 opens. Look at it again. This is how God responds. The Lord said to Moses, See, I've made you like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. These verses here to open this chapter are just so instructive on a couple of levels. They need, again, a look. Let's consider first what? What we learn about prophecy. See the word there? Like a prophet, what we learn about prophecy. Church, There is much misunderstanding and confusion about prophecy today. Maybe you're sitting here this morning yourself thinking, I'm confused about prophecy. As many people are claiming it. Some claim to be modern-day prophets with a message from the Lord. Some claim that they can hear from God, a special relationship, by way of some due process or the like. Some, well-intended, say prophecy is just retelling or just a commentary on God's Word. But look at the text. This is what I want to show you. This is not what you see here. God defines prophecy for us in this narrative. Prophecy here, as it always is in Scripture, is God speaking through human vessels to communicate, look at it, new revelation. That's what you're seeing here with Moses and Aaron. Something new is happening here in Egypt. And let me ask you something as we think through prophecy. Let me ask you this. When God speaks, does it have weight? When God says, I have something to say, does that carry weight? 
Are there only special times when God speaks that it carries weight and then maybe other times to get God? No, every time God opens his mouth, that has gravity. It has weight. I mean, Almighty God, by way of uttering words, giving revelation, beloved, I think you'd agree, that's something, isn't it? When God says, I have something to say, and yes, you have the Bible open in front of you, and I believe, if you're here this morning, you recognize the weightiness of those words in front of you, at least you should. Why? Because they are from God, they're God-breathed, they're God-inspired words. And you cherish those words because they're God's words. Now, I want you to hold on to that gravity and consider this. What if someone comes and says to you, well, I have a word from the Lord. I have a word from the Lord. What are they automatically saying when they say that? I have words of God from you with the same gravity, the same import as those words in your Bible. They proceed to tell you something and listen, whatever it is, a future prediction or whatever they want to give you, if it is truly from God, listen to me, if it is, and we just said, if it has that weight, then you need to write it in the back of your Bible and consider it Scripture. The problem with that, however, is that the canon is closed. Revelation 22.18 says this, The last chapter of the Bible, fittingly, providentially, by way of fortifying attempts to add other revelations, because God knew it would come, Revelation 22, 18 says this, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him, listen to this, the plagues described in this book. And by the way, it works both ways. You know those that get out their scissors and like to cut up God's word? put together their own neat little tidy copy of God's Word. Those that want to pick out the parts of the Bible, only the ones they like. I don't like all that other stuff. I like this stuff. Revelation twenty-two nineteen says of those, if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Beloved, listen, is that not scary? It is. And I wonder, for those who claim to have a fresh word from the Lord, as romantic as that sounds, or who easily cut and paste God's book, I ask, have they read God's book? Have they read the book? Beloved, God says to Moses, your brother shall be your prophet. Look at the weight of this account. This is what prophecy is. In other words, speaking the words for you. This is Almighty God. And look at verse 2. Not just any words, you shall speak all that you like, Moses, all that comes to your fancy, all that I command you, all that I command you, the biblical prophet never just gave his own interpretations and feelings. He gives God's word as we learn here. The prophet is one called and commissioned by God to deliver a message which was divinely given to him. We've lost this view of prophecy today. Like Moses, like Aaron here, simply given charge, commission to give direct revelation from God. That's one, what these verses tell us about prophecy. Two, these verses are instructive because of what we learn about positions. Sometimes in the Exodus account, we'll need to stop and just reflect for a moment, and this is one of those times. These words in verses one and two are being spoken to who? Let's just consider position for a second. A shepherd. 
a shepherd, and, and not, not only any shepherd, a veteran shepherd, an older shepherd, an 80-year-old shepherd. Again, we said this before, but remember, an exiled old Hebrew shepherd is getting this. But it's not only being called to stand before an exalted, young, powerful king. Think of those two positions. I mean, those are bookends, are they not? Shepherd king. But listen to this. Look at what God says of that confrontation in verse 1. See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. That's nothing short of astounding, is it? Shepherd you like God. Most English translations don't even capture the full force here, and I understand why. Literally, it's this. I have made you a God to Pharaoh. Even more, literally, we could say this. I have made you God to Pharaoh. Amazing. Now, before we get the wrong idea here, this is nothing more than God stating what we already know about his people. They are what? His image. His ambassadors. God is simply saying, you will stand as my ambassador as if it was me before Pharaoh. This is no different church for us in this day. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says that we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Same thing. In fact, again, you see something that we have just watered down. You stand, beloved, if you're in Christ, as a viceroy, as an agent, as a representative, as a stamp, as, as one that says, this is like Christ before you. Do you see how that must affect how you live your life? Professing Christ and living Christ cannot be divorced because you're an ambassador for him. And that here is the practical truth of Moses' position. And it brings us to the theological truth in regards to positions vis-a-vis Almighty God. Back to verse 1. God says, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. One powerful statement to reflect. One omnipotent, sovereign truth. God says, lowly shepherd. I know those years in Midian. I know that's where you are and where you feel comfortable. Moses, I will position you well above Pharaoh. More than an earthly king in that court, you will stand, not just in a place of prominence, listen to this, Moses, you will stand like God. Wow. And don't miss this, church. This is not a divine pep talk. This is not a DDC. Now, I've got to rally up Moses somehow. I need something good for this one. I really need it. This is not, I hope this goes well. This is the best I got. Moses is going to rah, rah, get out the foam finger. Go, Moses, go. That's not what this is. If you go to the text like this, you're missing it. This is a sovereign God telling and making it so. We'll see this in the chapters that follow. This is precisely what happens. Moses stands like God before Pharaoh. God sovereignly positions Moses not only in Pharaoh's court, but listen, far above and beyond Pharaoh's court, as we'll see. Like God himself, with a sign, plagues, and devastating power from God. That is only possible, this Hebrew shepherd defeating this Egyptian king, only because God is sovereign over, here it is, every position, every position, the highest and the lowest, if you will. Job 5.11. 
says, it is the Lord who sets on high those who are lowly. 1 Samuel 2.7 says, It is the Lord who makes poor and makes rich. It is the Lord who brings low and who exalts. Psalm 75.7 says, It is God who puts down one and God who lifts up another. Daniel 2.21 says, It is God who changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. What visuals with those? God just in complete control of all things. He raises up the king. He brings down the king. He moves the pieces as he chooses. He is God alone. That is God who is sovereign over every position. That's one. Two, God is sovereign over peoples. Look now at verse 3. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. We note first here that there's nothing new in these verses, right? You probably read them and say, we've heard this before, and we have. Everything that God declares he'll do, we've seen him declare in chapter 3 and chapter 4, so we have seen it. Here, then, is a helpful summation of God's sovereignty over peoples of all kind. First in verse 3, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Then here's the picture of that hardening. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, so imagine, though there's this miraculous display, even in spite of that, that should, by all earthly measure, convince someone, Pharaoh will not listen to you. That's the picture of hardness. Yes, God is sovereign and in complete control over Pharaoh's heart. And we noted a few weeks ago that just the plain reading is clear enough. And remember, we also mentioned that this is not the only instance of this. What did we remark? The books of Deuteronomy and Joshua record God's hardening Canaanite kings. What about the book of Ezra? Ezra 6 records God turning the king of Assyria's heart. And of course, Proverbs 21.1. Remember, says this, here's your picture again, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Church, here in Exodus, this is not an isolated incident. This is not a one-off, often misunderstood verse, if you will. This is Scripture's enduring theme, God's sovereign over hearts and peoples. This is what Scripture says repeatedly, over and over again, in word and in picture. God is sovereign over the human heart of all men. That is, God is in sovereign control over that intimate domain of man. Now, we've promised to build on that understanding as we move through Exodus, and today we do just that as we get a glimpse of something else in God's sovereignty. So we're just putting layers here, building blocks in our understanding of the sovereignty of God. I hope this is helpful. And the next one we would say is this, it is purpose, purpose, a divine will at work. This is the why. We have those questions, why, why does this happen? Why is God doing this? Go back to verse 4. 
Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. God hardens Pharaoh's heart here in Exodus, look at it, for the expressed purpose of what? Deliverance. That's why he's doing this. In other words, God does not harden for some random pleasure. I think, this is just me, I think one of the impediments to people receiving the sovereignty of God is they think there's just some deity in the sky that's just having fun with chess pieces and puppets. That's not God at all. He doesn't have random pleasure in that at all. Sovereignty is not cold. Sovereignty is not cold. No, instead we see here that God in his sovereign almighty power does whatever is needed for the good of his people. Think about what's about to happen. Is that for good? Yes. Sovereignty is not only warm, it's on fire. And I pray it's that hearth, it's that heat that gives you the comfort in these times. Beloved, is that not comforting? That God is in all of these axis-spinning things on this globe for your good. He has a purpose in sovereignty. And ultimately, like we said, aren't you thankful he is in control? And that is good. But listen, here's the great stuff. That's not the only purpose here. Or even the greatest purpose. In verse 5, God says that through this act of sovereign power, look at it. Egypt will know that I am the Lord. Now that should trigger something. Look back at chapter 5 for a moment. Do you remember this initial encounter and what Pharaoh said? Look at chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, so this is the very first meeting, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. There it is, right? And then remember this in verse 2, Pharaoh's response. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. We could say that about so many today, could we not? This kind of response, who is the Lord? Who is God? And look at all of the trouble that will ensue from not knowing God. So much we could say there. See, God says, here is the great good at work in my sovereign action. Now grab a hold of this. That Egypt, that the pagan, that the rebel, that the proud would know what? That I am the Lord. Is that not a great purpose? God's sovereignty has a purpose for your good, you Christian, but ultimately a great purpose for the people that you love, the people in the world, that they would know that he is God. This is sovereignty for the purposes of God's glory, the ultimate end of all things. Hear Psalm 33.10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. Hear 2 Chronicles 20, verse 6. The great prayer of Jehoshaphat. O Lord, you rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. And in a portion of Scripture that parallels God's sovereign judgment on Egypt here, I want you to consider just for a moment the book of Ezekiel. 
You get in the prophets often this midsection where there's judgment on the nations, but not just because. Listen to Ezekiel's prophecy to the nations. We're just going to do a quick survey starting in chapter 25. Just listen to Ammon. To Ammon, 25, Ezekiel, verse 7. Therefore, behold, I've stretched out my hand, listen to the language, against you, Ammon, and will hand you over as plunder to the nations, and I will cut you off from the peoples and make you perish out of the countries. I will destroy you, and here's the purpose. Then you will know that I am the Lord. What about Moab? few verses down, I will execute judgments upon Moab. Then what? They will know that I am the Lord. What about Edom? A few verses down, verse 14, I will lay my vengeance upon Edom by the hand of my people Israel, and they shall do in Edom according to my anger and according to my wrath, and they shall know my vengeance, declares the Lord. The Philistines, verse 17, I will execute great vengeance on them with wrathful rebukes. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. Tyre, same thing. Next chapter, verse 4. For I have spoken, declares the Lord God, and she shall become plunder for the nations, and her daughters on the mainland shall be killed by the sword. Then they will know that I am the Lord. We could go on and on. In fact, interesting, if you track in Ezekiel, it goes all the way to Egypt, and then guess who pops up in in chapter 30, 31? Pharaoh himself. Obviously a future time. Judgments, just like this one, let me just read you one against Egypt and Pharaoh later in Ezekiel. On that day, God says to Egypt, I will cause a horn to spring up for the house of Israel, and I will open your lips among them, then they will know that I am the Lord. This is to Ezekiel. See, nothing ever changes with God. He does what he does in his sovereignty for a purpose every time. And with the nations, it is to declare his glory judgment, yes, but that they would know that he is God. God is sovereign over all people, all nations. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, all for his purpose and for his glory. Pharaoh and Egypt here are just no different to what we see throughout scripture, and I would submit to you throughout history. It's always the same with God. Let's continue. God is sovereign over positions, peoples, and sovereign over plans. Let's keep reading Exodus 7, verse 6. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. By way of overview comment, we should mention that this verse, look at it there, Exodus 7, 6, is something of a turning point for Moses. This is an important point to mention. Look close again at it. Moses and Aaron did what? Just as the Lord commanded them. In other words, the delay... The excuses, the disobedience, it's all over. Now you're going to see just fulfillment, just obedience. In fact, as we will not only see in Pharaoh's court, but also in the wilderness from here on out, a very different, a very changed Moses emerges from this point on. Before Pharaoh, meekness is replaced with boldness as God's ambassador. In the wilderness, protest is replaced with petition as Israel's intercessor. And Christian, I want you to think about that for a moment. In spite of all of Moses' resistance and protests, and believe me, did he not have a lot of it? In spite of all that protest, listen, God still had his way. God's sovereign will was and is irresistible. 
It always is. It's because God is sovereign over plans, all of them, your plans and my plans. This is, once again, not only nothing new to the Exodus account, but it is true of all biblical accounts. The book of Proverbs, just by way of one other book, has much to say about this. Proverbs 16.1 The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Remember, Moses discovered that, right? More famously, just eight verses later, Proverbs 69, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord, what? Establishes his steps. Three chapters later, Proverbs 19, 21. This is just in a few chapters of one book. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. What about the New Testament? Same truth, same sovereign God. Apostle Paul knew this in Acts 18 in his quick visit to Ephesus recorded there. He told them, remember, of his desire to return. He said, I desire to return to you. But then he said this in Acts 18.21. Maybe you've heard a Christian brother or sister talk like this. I will return to you, Paul says, if God wills. And then he set sail. Paul knew his plans were not his final word. Paul knew his plans had to be filtered through what? God's sovereign plan. And we have plans, don't we? Oh dear, and many of you know me, I have many plans. But they must be, and they will be, filtered through the sovereignty of God. This is precisely what James is referring to. Consider the book of James. We looked at it a few times this morning in Sunday school. James 4. James 4, verse 13 to 16, maybe this passage is familiar. James says this, this New Testament wisdom, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. You know, I I read a verse like that, and I think about all the plans in January and February of 2020. You know, this is what I'm doing in August. I'm actually crossing the border, I'm going here. Think about it, in one fell swoop, God said, "Mm hmm. Verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Amen to that. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then what? Vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Thus says the Lord. Beloved, we have plans, and there's nothing wrong with having plans, right? Implied even in the James verses, there's nothing wrong. In fact, I'd submit to you, being responsible, being a good steward has plans. But here's the catch, and here's where frustrations go askew. When you don't filter those plans through the sovereignty of God, what happens? Then when your plans get thwarted, what happens? Sin. Sin, unbiblical responses to life, right? We need to filter that through God's sovereign will. Here, for Moses, look in verse 6, it's simply stated, Moses obeys. Look at that. The sovereign will of God always wins the day. From here, it's only what the Lord commands. Now, verse 7 is the example of just the type of verse that we're likely to dismiss. This is... The real exhibit A of a verse that you can just read quickly by, maybe jot down a few historical details, factual details, and move on. And 
It is, of course, the age of God's people. Yet, church, please don't do that with verse 7. Don't do that. Look at verse 7. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Don't leave it there. Here is the example in this passage of not a man not only making his plans, but thinking that something here just automatically means these types of plans. I mean, they're 80 and 83. I know how that goes, some would say. And yes, indeed, we do this when we hit those later decades, like the 80s for Moses and Aaron. We have plans. We have built-in default plans for our 80s, and often they are plans to wind down. At least that's what the world would say. Yet here we can't help but note, we can't help but note these two brothers, grab it this morning, are in their 80s. These two brothers are in their 80s. Regardless of their plans for later life, Moses, you know, picture it, maybe to finish out his days in Midian, right? How beautiful it is in Midian, it's so calm. Regardless of his later life plans, look at the text, God has his plans, his sovereign plans. It was not just to pass the days by, right, with Jethro, his daughter, living peacefully in the pasture. No, Moses, no, Aaron, God called you, God has equipped you, look at it, in your 80s to do his work. Moses, you might have had plans, big plans, nest eggs for that quiet retirement. But God says this. Look at the text. Those are not my plans. Those are your plans. They're not mine. You are looking to wind down. But Moses, I am looking to just get started. This is my plan. And here it is. Ten plagues. One long continental journey by foot and 40 more years leading my sheep in the wilderness. That's my sovereign plan. In God's sovereign plan, 80-year-old Moses is just getting started. 80-year-old Moses, 83-year-old Aaron, in light of what's ahead, demonstrate that age is no barrier when it comes to being used by God. Westmount, age is no barrier when it comes to being used by God. Praise Him. Again, church, it's timely to ask in light of that truth, do you believe this? Do you believe that? Whatever your age is here this morning, do you believe this? Whether you're 18 or younger, 80 or older, or somewhere in between, do you believe that your age and stage of life is no barrier to God's plans? Do you believe that, really? God always has a purpose for his people. While you live and have breath, he has a purpose for you. Because listen, beloved, that's why you're here. Why are you still here? Because God is not done with you. And he has a purpose for your life. God has purpose and plan for your life. Here it is, and don't miss this, to do his work and to glorify him through the years that he has given to you. That's what we see at Moses and Aaron. That, beloved, is why you are still here living and breathing. For his purposes and to glorify him. Yes, indeed, God is sovereign over our plans. And, beloved, that means not just plans on earth, but plans in heaven. The Apostle Peter, in a very turbulent first century, we've talked about the parallels between the first century and the 21st century enough, but that was a far more turbulent time if you called yourself a Christian. 
In that time, the Apostle Peter pointed to this heavenly plan. Acts 2. Men of Israel, he says, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, then listen to this, this Jesus delivered up how? According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Is that a plan? Is that a sovereign plan? Yes, it is. This Jesus delivered up for death, not letting them off the hook. Do you see that? They're still accountable for their actions. But Almighty God, through Peter, says, this Jesus delivered up for death at the hands of lawless, accountable men. Peter says, that actually has always been the plan. The definite plan from eternity foreknowledge. Christian, that is the plan from before time began for your salvation. Saved, redeemed, delivered from an eternity separated from God. And a life on earth here while you have breath, sanctified, positioned in Christ. Right there you stand today in union with your Savior. With faith and trust in Christ. Union with Christ here on earth, His purposes, His glory. And listen to me, that position, union with Christ, saved in Christ, being sanctified in Christ, that position in 2020 is the only position in which you can accurately say, I'm safe. That's the only way anyone can stay safe in Christ. That's it. There is no other position that you can be safe in. And what you're seeing today is a whole lot of the consequence of not being in Christ. A lot of looking to control and hang on to things. A lot of wanting to be in their own position with their own plans for their own purposes and their own glory. That's why God is sifting right now. He is the only true sovereign Lord over all of creation. And the only solution to this globe's problem is the soul that recognizes God alone for who he is. Friend, as you watch the world and your life and much that you hold dear spiral out of control, we ask you, will you repent of yourself and believe in the only one who is truly in control? Will you do that today? Listen, our time here on earth is short, shorter by the day. We've got that ice-cold bucket of water poured on all of us, right? Our life is like a vapor. We are dying, and we are not in control. And the question is, can I prevent, is not that I can prevent death. The question actually is, where am I going when I die? Where am I going to spend eternity? Where will that be? That's the question. Because there's only one who is in control of these things. And he has laid it before you. I don't know where you are this morning. But he's laid it before you. Will you trust in your own control or will you trust, which is a mirage, an illusion? Or will you trust in his sovereign control? It's as far as we're going to get today. We'll return to this text. As you can see, there's just so much in here. I pray we get through it next week. 
and our, with our continued look at God's sovereignty next time. We'll pick it up right there in verse 8 next time. Let's pray. Sovereign Father, you are indeed almighty from eternity past, present, and future. And God, who are we that you would even look on us and pull us into your plan? Who are we? God, it is an amazing thing that in your sovereignty, you looked down, you chose us, you saved us, Lord, you sanctified us, and you will call us home to be with you forever. Lord, let us grab hold of that sovereign control. Forgive us, Lord, for those moments where we give in to temporal illusions of control. Let us walk out strong, safe, truly safe, in union with Christ, your Son. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.